Well, good morning, Veritas. My name is Brian, uh, one of the pastors here. I love teaching the Bible. So this is fun this morning. We have three services this morning, um, as opposed to one outside. But it's not a have to preach time three times. It's I get to. So um, I feel like I have to prepare you a little bit beforehand, though. Um, if there was a seatbelt on your seat, I would tell you to strap it on. Um, if there was a headrest, I would tell you to raise it because it's going to be a little bit of a whiplash from last week. Uh, we go from this nearly indescribable joy of, you know, what God has done the last 10 years, kind of a surreal experience, to now a guy is having sex with his mom at the church in Corinth. I'll give you a chance to take that in. We're going to ease into it, okay? We won't go to the text right away. Um, think about this before we get into the text. Uh, for those of you who do the grocery shopping in your house, I've done it from time to time. You know that there's good days. <clears throat> and there's bad days to go to the grocery store, right? Aldi fans out there, right? You know what? It's Tuesday and Friday, right? Tuesday and Friday, we get the fresh batches of produce on those days. If you don't go on those days, you could run into some problems, right? Throw, throw up that first picture up there. You could run into something like this, right? And if you're not careful, you could come home and you can open up your bag of apples or your strawberries and you could see that in there. And you might just think, well... That is so gross and so nasty. I don't even want to touch it. I'm just going to kind of eat around it, right? I'll just leave it there, eat around it. We'll be okay. The problem is if that's your approach, you're probably going to run to the second picture, okay? This is what's probably going to happen. And guys, I looked this up. It's actually scientifically true. One bad apple does in fact ruin the whole barrel. It's scientifically proven. So you have to remove that rotten piece of fruit or the rest is going to get infected, and guys, that's essentially what Paul is going to tell us today in 1 Corinthians 5. There's this man uh, involved in this unrepentant pattern of sin, and the rest of the people in the church aren't doing anything about it. And so Paul's going to say, well, for your good and for his good and for the good of the witness of the church, you got to get rid of the bad apple. And so if you're taking notes, the big idea today is that the toleration of sin leads to the infection of the church. The toleration of sin leads to the infection of the church. So if that's the problem, toleration of sin, we need a solution. And Paul gives us a fourfold solution here. The holiness of the church is preserved by four things. One, being under authority. Two, removing the evil person. Three, judging your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then four, celebrating who you are. And we'll, we'll take those in order. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 5. We'll take the first two verses first. We're going to get a little bit of a context for Paul's rebuke here. He's going to use some strong words with these people in the church in Corinth. So 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. He says, it is actually reported. So they didn't take the initiative to tell him. Somebody else had to tell him. He found out from somebody else, right? Not that church, certainly not the man that was sitting. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are arrogant? Shouldn't you be filled with grief and removed from your congregation the one who did this? So we have a man who professes to be a Christ follower. He's having sex with his stepmom. She's not a believer. That's why Paul doesn't talk about her. 
And we know from the verbs that Paul uses that this sin has been going on and on for some time. We also know that the people in the church have known about it for some time and are not doing anything about it. So uh, to be clear, Paul is condemning all sexual sin. The word he uses there, it's that word pornea we've talked about from stage before. It's kind of this broad term. He's not just condemning incest. He's condemning all sexual sin. But notice how much little time he spends talking about the sin or the sinner. I mean, this is a bad sin. He's saying, listen, there's people that don't even proclaim to be Christ followers, and they don't even tolerate this stuff. And you guys are? But he pretty quickly moves past the sinner. Far more alarming to Paul is that they're doing nothing about it. And we don't know if it's, you know, they're rationalizing the sin. Um, Maybe they're simply trying to excuse it, sort of brush it under the rug, because they don't even want to confront it. But their attitude is a problem, right? They're arrogant. And you are arrogant. I mean, the the fact that this professing brother is caught in this unrepentant pattern of sin, it should bring you to tears. You guys should, should be crushed in your hearts. You should be pleading with this guy to repent. But instead, you're arrogant? And as we've seen, this has been a problem, right? Every single chapter we've studied, this is a big problem for the people in this church. It's sort of this inflated sense of their own spiritual status, right? This spiritual pride that they have. And spiritual pride is always going to lead to moral compromise. We've seen it before, and now we see it in a big way again. If the sin isn't repented of, not just in Corinth, but in Veritas, it increases and it spreads its infection. You know, when I was coaching, one of the phrases that we used to use to try and set the culture of whatever program I was involved with was, you encourage what you tolerate. So in other words, if, if we tolerated an athlete not finishing a drill in practice, right, they're kind of just going to go through the motions, not even finish the drill. Well, what we were encouraging, in essence, was them doing the same thing when it came time for the game, right? You encourage what you tolerate. And Paul is kind of saying the same thing right here, guys. You encourage what you tolerate. You've got to do something about this. You can't just sit back while this is going on. So let's read on to find the solution to this. Verses 3 and 4. Paul says, Even though I'm absent in the body, I am present in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, I am with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus. So we see Paul exercising his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's how he introduces himself in chapter 1, verse 1. And he's saying, listen, this authority, it's not just based on my physical presence. I don't have to be there to exercise authority over you. It's actually based on two things. One, I was an appointed an apostle by God's will. Also chapter 1, verse 1 of this book. But more importantly than that, he, he's saying, listen, when somebody does something in somebody else's name, uh, they're acting in that person's authority. And in this case, it's the name of Jesus Christ, he says. He's also saying, listen, it's not just my responsibility. Yes, I'm your spiritual father, I'm the church leader, but this is the responsibility of the entire church. And listen, when, when the people of the church are gathered together like we do on Sunday mornings, the presence and the power of Jesus are with us. And so he's saying, listen, it's in that context, the gathered church 
When you declare something that is so in line with God's will, we can't tolerate this sin. He's saying Jesus Christ puts his stamp of approval and authority on that. Saying, listen, I agree with the decision you're making. This is wrong. Something needs to be done about it. So the first part of the solution is that the holiness of the church is preserved by being under authority. The holiness of the church is preserved by being under authority. Jesus Christ is certainly our chief shepherd, but we also need human leaders in authority. We get this idea from, among other places, Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. In order to safeguard our souls from the dangers of spiritual pride, and this goes for elders and pastors, everybody, we need somebody in our lives who can call us to account for the way that we're living our lives as Christians. And then they can come alongside us and shepherd us if we become a sheep that is wandering or is maybe is wounded or is rebellious in some way. Guys, it can be awfully dangerous to avoid accountability in the church. It usually comes in one of two ways. One, you can hide, right? I mean, praise God, 750 people last week, but it's pretty easy for one sheep to hide amongst 750, right? You can come on Sunday, but kind of stay on the fringes, uh, not going to serve, not going to do church membership, not going to get involved in a connection group. I'll just, I'll just kind of stay on the edges, stay on the outskirts. Never really invite intentional discipleship into your life. Maybe a bigger problem other than hiding those running, right? I could name 10 other churches in this area where you could go to. If we say something you don't like, just go to a different church. And what this really is, it's a call to church membership. Guys, we've talked about this before. Church membership boils down to this. When you sign on to become a member of Veritas Church, you're signing the dotted line saying, I invite intentional discipleship into my life. I want not just to know the elders and pastors, the church leaders, but I want to be known at sort of a soulish level. I want you to know my greatest sin struggles, my greatest fears, my dreams, my unanswered prayers. You won't see that term church membership in the Bible, but the idea is all over, guys. It's all over the Bible. And so as a very practical point of application. You guys heard Rebecca launch point starts in a couple weeks. That is our membership class. You can sign up online. You guys will never regret inviting that intentional discipleship into your life. Let's move on and find out more about the solution. So verses five, and we'll go through part of seven, five, six, and part of seven. So Paul said, listen, I'm not there, but I'm still going to exercise my authority by pronouncing judgment on this guy. And then here's his next step of action. Hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven. So this man who is having sex with his stepmother is to be formally excluded from this. And Paul's going to go on a couple verses later to say, actually, don't even associate with this guy. Don't even sit down to have a meal with him. Instead, he says, what? Turn him back into Satan's sphere of influence. 
Now let's pause for a second and realize what we're not dealing with. That's, that's a pretty strong rebuke, right? Let, let's talk about what we're not dealing with. We're not dealing with unbelievers. Okay, this man has professed to follow Christ. We're also not dealing with just any sin that a Christian might commit. Right? The Bible's very clear that every single Christian will have this battle of flesh against spirit. We're going to fight it, but at times we'll give into it. The rest of our lives, this side of heaven. So we're not dealing with that. But what are we dealing with? A professing Christian engaged in a pattern of sin, and he refuses to repent. That's what we're dealing with here. So why turn him back over to Satan? Why cast him out into the world? What's the purpose? Well, Paul says first to restore him, right? We see that in verse 5, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul's really talking about a a form of church discipline, right? And remember, discipline isn't inconsistent with love. You can think of um, along the lines of Hebrews 12, where the author of Hebrews says, well, what father doesn't discipline the son or daughter that he loves? Discipline is a form of teaching. And how is it supposed to happen? He says, well, through the destruction of the flesh. Not physical harm, but flesh here refers to kind of that sinful desire in us. You can think along the lines of uh, Galatians 5 where Paul says, listen, the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, and the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. We have this battle that wages in us, right? So Paul says, we'll turn him back to Satan's sphere of influence, back out into the world. What good is that going to do? God can use Satan's hostility against human beings to train people for his own purposes, for God's own purposes. And that's what Paul is talking about right here. The hope is that separation from this fellowship of brothers and sisters is going to motivate this guy to repent so that he can once again enjoy all the blessings that come along with what we do on Sunday mornings. It's a privilege to be a part of the church with all the blessings that comes with it. And the fact that Listen, guys, this is an important point. Removal of this guy from this is supposed to be a redemptive action in this guy's soul. That speaks to the essential nature of what we're doing here, guys. So if you've got family and friends that that aren't here but can be, um, I talk to you watching online. Be safe. Be responsible. If you're at a higher risk, don't come. But if at all possible, you can come Come. The spiritual isolation is wreaking havoc on people's souls in our day and time. So restore the sinning person. Second, he says, well, it's to prevent the infection from spreading, right? He gives us this illustration from Passover. The Israelites would make bread every single week. It was a staple of their diet. And one of the things that they would do is they would leave a lump of it aside, okay? So if I'm making this week's bread, I take a piece of it out, I leave it aside, allow it to ferment, And then I would add that to next week's dough to give it kind of that light kind of sourdough texture. The problem is that fermentation process could lead to infection a lot of times. So oftentimes what happened is I left a small batch aside, it got infected. I added it to next week's batch. Well, now that batch is infected. So I take some of that out and I put it to the following week's batch and that got infected. So what God commanded them to do is at Passover, You need to observe what's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remove all the leaven from your homes. And the purpose was to break that cycle of infection, right? Remove the bad apple. Get it out of there. We need to break this cycle 
to preserve our purity and our holiness. Third, Paul doesn't really say this explicitly, but he certainly alludes to this. First, we want to restore the sinner. Second, we want to prevent the infection from spreading. But third, we got to protect the witness of the church. If the church is tolerating sin that not even unbelievers would entertain, what does that say about our witness? Right In, in Matthew 5, uh, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, it's no longer good for anything. You might as well throw it out. Let people trample over it under their feet. If we're the same as the rest of the world, it's going to be impossible for people to see God through us. We can't possibly display God to the world if we're no different than the world. We'll come back to verses 7 and 8. Let's go to verses 9 through 13. So he says, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from you. So Paul makes a couple very crucial distinctions here. First, he says, listen, it's only professing Christians that aren't acting like it, that we're to not associate with, that, that we're not associate, like kind of like to mix up with, to keep close, intimate company with. Paul would actually say, you should rub shoulders with unbelievers. Okay? You, you can't display God to people without Christ if you're not in relationship with people without Christ. Don't get mixed up in their ungodliness, but man, be in relationship with them, right? Display God to their lives. But second, he says, we're not to judge unbelievers, but here's our third point. The holiness of the church is preserved by judging your brothers and sisters in Christ. The holiness of the church is preserved by judging your brothers and sisters in Christ. Guys, there's, there's a limit beyond which our patience and our tolerance and even our grace toward another sin just ceases to become a virtue anymore. We can't tolerate it forever because the holiness of the church is at stake. And to be clear, we learned this a couple weeks ago, we're judging behavior, not motives, right? We're judging behavior, not motives. But that word judging, I know it gets probably a bad rap in Christian circles, but just take stock of what we're doing here. Okay, you're, you're lovingly looking at a brother or sister in Christ. You're evaluating their life over a period of time. And you're just making the simple decision, that's wrong. Right? Like Jake said a couple weeks ago, it's an oxymoron. They confess one thing, but their life looks totally different. You're not condemning them to hell. You're just making a decision. Your life doesn't line up with your confession. Now, we probably need some rails to run on here because we don't want this judging others to run rampant, right? Let's make sure we practice this in a healthy way. First of all, we said already it's unrepentant patterns of sin, right? But beyond that, make sure you're on the same playing field, Paul's saying. Make sure it's a believer, right? Because unbelievers, they haven't ascribed to live by this book. Make sure it's another believer. And probably it would be wise to follow Jesus' advice in, in Matthew 7. He says, listen, 
Remove the plank from your own eye before you point out the splinter in somebody else's. I mean, if you've got some glaring patterns of sin in your own life, even if you're repenting of them, but you're just, man, you're having a hard time bringing those under control, you probably aren't the best person to call out somebody else's sin. Also, make sure it's based on God's word. We learned this in in chapter 4, right? Paul said, don't go beyond what is written in Scripture. Your judgment of somebody else can't be based on your opinion. It's got to be based on God's word. Uh, It's got to be done out of a motivation of love, right? And the purpose has to be restoration, to sort of bring them back into God's fold, God's gathering. Not just to say, well, hey, here's one more way I'm better than you. That would be acting like the Corinthians. The purpose is restoration. Imagine, guys, a person who has every reason to believe that they have cancer. All right, all the signs and symptoms are there, but they refuse to go to the doctor, either because they just don't want to face the problem or maybe they don't want to face the treatment. And Paul is saying right here, listen, you need to face the problem and you need to face the treatment. Facing the problem means that either in ourselves or in a Christian brother or sister, we confront them with their unrepentant sin, and we call them to account to it in a gentle and loving way. And then facing the treatment means we walk with them through the process of restoration. And that can be messy, right? That can be ugly, because it might include church discipline like it does right here, not associating with them for a period of time. But guys, we were never after a megachurch. We're after a holy church. And preserving the holiness of the church requires that we judge our brothers and sisters. So maybe the question to ask us right now is, what sin have we normalized? Right? Ask yourself that as an individual. We need to ask that as a church as well. What sin are we tolerating at Veritas Church? Because Paul's list is exhaustive. He gives some very specific ones, right? Sexually immoral, greedy, verbally abusive. But he also throws in that idolater, right? Sounds a lot like the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And you can't break commandments two through ten without breaking commandment one. Idolatry. Now to help you answer that question, you you really need to know what lens am I looking at my entire life through? Is it the lens of Jesus Christ or is it through my political affiliation, right? Is it the lens of Jesus Christ, or is it some social justice cause? Last week, uh, our staff read an article by one of our Iranian brothers in Christ. The article is called, Infidels in Iran and Apostates in America. And this is part of what he had to say. He said, so America asks you this, are you being discipled by Jesus or by coronavirus and Black Lives Matter? Are you discipling people to Jesus, or are you making disciples of this year's events? If the latter, what will you do when the winds change? We have plenty of injustice in Iran, and God sees it and he cares. He's dealing with it, and he will deal with it. But we aren't discipling Iranians to solve temporal problems in this temporal age. We're discipling for eternity. So are you discipling for eternity? Are you discipling people to Jesus Christ or to the Democratic Party? to Jesus Christ or to some social justice cause? And maybe a more important question is, who or what is discipling you? The the teachings that you're taking into your soul, are they from Jesus Christ or are they primarily from CNN or from social media? 
Because guys, here's the thing. We, we've got incest here in the church in Corinth, right? The anger and the hatred, uh, the division that has surrounded this year's events, they could potentially do far more damage to the church than a case of incest. And so don't answer those questions right now. You're going to need some time to answer those questions. But ask God to search your soul and make clear to you what sin you might be tolerating in your life. And then you bring that sin, those sins, to God. You repent of them. And what do we learn in 1 John this summer? Jesus is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then this last point, it becomes really, really fun, guys. Let's read on. Let's go back to verses 7 and 8. So Paul says, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So last, the holiness of the church is preserved by celebrating who you are. The holiness of the church is preserved by celebrating who you are. Guys, when you come across any verses in your own devotional time in the Bible that contain that phrase, you are, do something to take special note of them. Circle them, underline them, highlight them. That's an identity statement from God to you. And he's telling you something about your purpose in life. Something about your worth and value as an individual, as a human being created in his image. And what does he say right here? He says, you are a new unleavened batch of dough. This is when we need the message translation, right? I don't want to be an unleavened batch of dough, right? In other words, Paul is saying, listen, you're already a new creation in Christ. You're unstained by your former sins. You're freed from your former way of life. That doesn't identify you anymore. He's also saying, listen, Christ didn't just die so that you could just punch your ticket to heaven. He died so that he could recreate you in his image. And by doing that, you could display God to the rest of the world. And then take note of that, therefore, in verse 8. So therefore, in other words, in light of what Christ has done for you, keep on celebrating. Except for us, we don't keep celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Thank goodness, right? The way that Christians celebrate, we celebrate the forgiveness of Jesus by living a holy life. That's how we celebrate. He says, not with malice and evil, right? He's talking about your, your intention here, right? Your motivation. Not so much your action. Like, don't, don't, don't say that, like, I, I know everything in this book. I truly, I know everything in this book. And, and I confess to kind of follow this book in my life. But I'm going to intentionally, kind of premeditatively, live a totally different way. Right? Just give myself over to sin. Well, don't do that. That's being a total sham. Right? The grace of the cross doesn't give you freedom to sin. It gives you freedom from sin. And that's why he says, well, here's how you celebrate. You do it with sincerity and truth. And once again, he's not talking mainly about the action. He's talking the motivation of the action, right? Free from hypocrisy, authentically, right? You're not a total sham. And let's be clear. A Christian who sins is not a hypocrite, okay? Because what do we profess? We don't profess that we're perfect. We don't profess that we're not without sin, 
We profess that we're with sin, and that's why we need Jesus. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is actually saying, I profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but intentionally and knowingly and premeditatively, I'm going to give myself over to sin. That's hypocrisy. Paul's saying, that's not the way we should do it. That shouldn't be the motivation of our hearts. Here's the great news, guys. Everything needed in order for you to live a holy life has already been done. Because your holiness is based squarely on what Jesus has already done. He's finished at the cross. Paul puts it this way. He says, when you transfer your trust to Jesus Christ, you're united with him in two crucial ways. The first, he says, this is Romans 6. He says, you're united with Christ in his death. Why does that matter? Well, because he says that the second you're united with Christ in his death, the power of sin inside of you, it's put to death. He doesn't mean you're not going to sin anymore, but he means sin's not going to drag you around like you're a slave. Tell you what to do. You can say no to sin and say yes to God. And he says also, you transfer your trust to Christ, you're united with him in his resurrection. Well, why does that matter? Because when we're united with Christ in his resurrection, our heart is remade. It's recreated to desire to live a life that's pleasing to God. To desire love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. If you've already transferred your trust to him, those two things are true of you and they could never be more true of you. We just have to believe it. And that's why he's saying just Be who you are. It's already true of you. Just be who you are. If you haven't, you don't have to go out and clean yourself up. All you have to do is believe. Just say, listen, I I can't do this life on my own. I can't make myself right before God. I can't be a good person on my own. I'm going to lean wholly on what Jesus Christ has already done. You just transfer your trust to him. And then those two things are true of you. You're united with him in his death and in his resurrection. Veritas, let's be a church family that celebrates who we are because of what Jesus has already done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I I pray, God, that we would have a greater appreciation for your holiness, God, and a greater appreciation for you forming this, this new community that we call the church and that we would cherish all the blessings you give us through this new community of the church, so much so that we would be passionate about preserving its holiness. I pray, Lord, that you would give us humble hearts to receive whatever hard word you might have for us today, if there is a sin we're tolerating. God, that we wouldn't turn our backs on you, but that we would come under you as apprentices, as students, and be taught by you, and repent of our sins, and receive your grace to cleanse us from those sins, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name, Father. Amen.